Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, an editor based in New York, and joining me from D.C. is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy. How's it going? I am great. Thanks for asking. It's actually kind of nice to be asked how I'm doing. I'm usually the one to introduce you, but we're switching things up. But speaking of how we're doing, um, if anyone out there is listening, wants to leave us a review, it's actually a very helpful way to help people find the show, gets us out there. So if you want to do that, much appreciated. But moving on to this week, it was pretty slow at the Supreme Court, right? Natalie, there were no arguments, there was no opinions or even orders. Yeah, yeah there's just not a lot happening. Uh, everyone's kind of laying low. Um, I suppose they're like furiously at their keyboards writing the rest of the opinions for the term. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of pretty much. Although there, there was one thing, uh, not from the court itself, but from the Biden administration about a court case that we're going to dig into in a, in a moment. And then there was uh, some chatter along the Twitter sphere and other media about uh, one of the justices, Justice Breyer, and whether or not he should retire. So we're also going to dig into that. Yes, we are at the kind of perennial stage of the term where the the talk starts to go towards who's going to be the one to retire. And, and now it's just a Stephen Breyer's term to enter the kind of rumor mill so to speak. But um, getting back to what you were talking about, the change of position from the Biden administration in a pretty significant criminal case. Now, normally, um, a new administration will change positions in cases involving ma- like significant matters of public policy, whether it's something like Trump's border wall or LGBTQ rights. This one was significant in that it came in a criminal case where administrations are kind of less likely to take a different course than the administration that preceded it. Now, this case called Terry versus the United States, the DOJ told the court that it's no longer arguing that people serving time in prison for low-level crack offenses are ineligible for reduced sentences under the First Step Act of 2018. That was the big criminal justice law passed during the previous administration. Uh, The Trump administration actually taken a pretty strict reading of the First Step Act that excluded a large class of offenders, namely you know, people convicted of low-level crack offenses from the sentencing relief of the First Step Act. And that's the the position that the Biden administration is kind of abandoning uh, this week, which kind of raises some question about how the case is going to move forward. Okay, so I don't think we've talked about this case before. Kind of give us just the big overview of what the hinge point is for this case. Sure. So the Trump DOJ had taken the position that the First Step Act only covered people convicted of larger quantities of crack. This was because of a technical reading that they gave to the terms covered offense in the law. And the 11th Circuit agreed with the the Trump administration about this argument, as did several other circuit courts, creating this kind of geographical split Right. So in the country, depending on where you were seeking your appeals, you if you were convicted of a low level crack offense, you either could or couldn't seek to reduce your sentence um, based on this split among the circuit courts about what actually constituted a covered offense. And so now the Biden administration is coming into the Supreme Court and saying, look, we've read the law again and we think that pretty much all you know, crack offenders should be eligible for the the sentencing relief that was provided in this 2018 uh, criminal justice law. A bit of context here is that this is all about reducing the historical disparity between um, powder cocaine and crack sentencing. And that's been kind of an effort of Congress for the last few years. And so, you know, the Biden administration coming in now and changing its position is really bringing the administration more in line with 
you know, President Joe Biden and what he said about things like criminal justice reform. Because, you know, remember, this is coming three months after the change in administration. And so for a while there, the, the Biden administration was essentially maintaining the Trump administration's position in court, which was a little bit at odds, saying that, all, you know, this huge category of offenders was ineligible for getting their sentences reduced. So they've changed their position, though. So what's left of the case? Because I know it was it was scheduled for oral arguments. So the defendant, Terry, he is still serving the remainder of his sentence, which ends in September. And he wants this case decided as quickly as possible. And in a letter to the court, his lawyers welcomed, you know, the the new Biden DOJ's change of position, but said that the three months that they took to, to come to terms with the fact that the Trump DOJ got it wrong shouldn't end up prejudicing him by... Um, you know, delaying the resolution of the case, you know, till maybe his term, his, his sentence actually ends. So the court's going to probably consider appointing an outside lawyer to come in as amicus counsel to essentially defend the Trump's DOJ's position. You know, it hasn't announced who that will be or whether it will even do that, take that course of action. That's something that the DOJ had floated. Um, but there's a there's kind of a lot of open questions about this case because it's currently scheduled for oral arguments, you know, at the end of April, and that doesn't give an outside lawyer a lot of time to come in and get up to speed on the case. I don't know if you would want that assignment. <laughs> no, I would not. I, I I would I think freak out a little bit just over <laughs> the tight deadline for that. I'm sure I'm sure though someone uh, will be happy to step up to the plate and kind of pull some all nighters in, in advance of the oral arguments. Um, so we'll see who they end up picking. Uh, speaking of picking, though, there. There's some who are hoping Biden will get to pick his first Supreme Court justice in the near future. Assuming, of course, that President Biden has a vacancy to fill, right? And that is was the big debate uh, this week in the Twitter sphere and in some opinion columns that we saw where there were some warring pieces about whether or not Breyer should be publicly pressured to announce his retirement and give Biden that vacancy where he can put someone on the Supreme Court. So there was a Monday op-ed in the New York Times by law professor Paul F. Campos titled Justice Breyer Should Retire Right Now. Can't really mistake the, the point of that one. And then a what I would consider to be kind of a response piece uh, the following day on Tuesday from uh, law professor Noah Feldman in Bloomberg Opinion titled Stop Telling Stephen Breyer to Retire. So <laughs> there were some interesting points made in both, but I don't know. It's a pretty interesting debate. No, Natalie? Definitely. And, and look, we've talked about Breyer before and kind of the Breyer watch before. Um, the Breyer patch. By Briar Patch, is that what we're calling it? <laughs> no, let's not uh, call no. it that. <laughs> let's not call it that. <laughs> and look, this this all ties back to um, the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And when we were talking about that, you know, the one big criticism that kept coming out um, among her obits and her in memoriams was this criticism that she didn't preserve her legacy in a way, you know, that she, she, that in choosing to not retire under Obama, um, she, she made this chess misstep of, you know, not preserving her legacy, not ensuring that there would be another like-minded voice to, to come after her and to fill her role and to, to help, you know, kind of preserve the balance of the court. And look, this also obviously ties into what was underlining some of the contentiousness with Justice Amy Coney Barrett's con confirmation hearings uh, that followed. And obviously she replaced Justice Ginsburg. Um, 
Although, if, if I'm being honest, all of this also ties back to the two contentious hearings even before that. You know, it, it, all of this, I think, really ties to how the courts just become so much more politicized over the last few years and how any justice kind of maneuvering or, you know, retirement and, and replacement is just seen as a, a political issue now. And I think everyone pretty much admits that now, that it actually is really important who the party in power is when it comes to nominating a successor. And, you know, I don't think that that's lost on the justices of the Supreme Court, especially someone like Justice Stephen Breyer, who comes from, you know, a a semi-political background, having worked as a lawyer on Capitol Hill, albeit in a different political era. But I think it's really interesting what's happening now is that there's this real urgency to the debate, right? So Justice Biden, or excuse me, President Biden is pretty early on in his term, and yet you're already seeing people clamoring from the rooftops that he announced his his resignation and his retirement, and that's just because Democrats were so burned by what happened to Justice Ginsburg and re- being replaced by her kind of ideological opposite, if you will, someone who is you know an admitted and avowed conservative textualist and originalist. And uh, a lot of the debate stems around this fear, right, that maybe if Democrats don't get the ball rolling on a on a Supreme Court nominee sooner than later, then they could essentially miss their chance to get the person of their dreams, to get the person that they want to put on the Supreme Court. And that is what's inflaming this debate. Well, and, and that was what uh, the law professor Paul Campos kind of, you know, made, a I think, a big point of his argument to calling for justice prior to retire and, and kind of, you know, that the, the political winds can shift at a moment's notice. Right. Um, and I think he had some data that 27 of the last 38 Congresses have featured a change in the party during a Senate session uh, of the Senate during a session. And, you know, look, things happen. People get sick. There are retirements. There are people, the senators that just, you know, end up getting out of office midterm and it's not expected. And it is a slim majority right now in, in the Senate. So obviously, yes, things can change. But as as that data points out, this has always been the case, right? This has always been the issue, but it just feels different right now just because the courts become so much more political. It does feel different. It feels like, um, you know... Democrats and progressives are making no bones about their urgent desire to tell Breyer to step down, um, whereas maybe those calls were a little bit more muted during the Obama administration when there was that conversation happening around Justice Ginsburg out of fear for some kind of breach of decorum with, you know, uh, seeing as being politically influencing of a member of the Supreme Court, which is was at least then had a probably a a higher reputation as being this very non-political, independent institution. But there are still some of the persuasion that, you know, we shouldn't, law professors especially, shouldn't be calling on people like Justice uh, Breyer to retire because it's just not really a good look. And he says, Feldman writes that, you know, Breyer knows all these facts, right, about the the slim one-vote um, Democratic majority in Congress, and you know, I, I mentioned his time uh, working as a as a as chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee back in the you know decades ago. But you know, he, he he's known kind of as the Supreme Court's chief pragmatist. And, and Feldman writes that we should pretty much leave it to the pragmatist to be practical, and that every column or television comment Feldman writes 
traps Breyer into having to stay out so as not to appear to be acting as a partisan. So it's almost putting him in a bind in a way. Isn't that also, that argument's also just tinged with political maneuvering in in a sense. It is. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... it's it's like you know three dimensional chess. It's like let's let's let Breyer make the decision that we all want him to make on his own. You know, so I don't. I, I think that there's more agreement between those two pieces that a, a lot of um, you know uh, Twitter users care to admit because I think that I think Democrats, whether you're a member of the liberal elite or you are uh, the liberal uh, legal elite, I should say, or you are just a you know like a kind of a grassroots uh, progressive who wants to see maybe the court reshaped from the ground up. Um, I think all both of those factions of uh, Democrats and progressives want to see Breyer retire. It's just about what to say about it in the public sphere and whether we should continue to observe these kind of antiquated norms around the Supreme Court as being this kind of apolitical institution that I don't really think... You, I, or anyone at this point continues to believe. So this is a lot of spotlight for for Justice Breyer, uh, frankly, more so than I think he's used to, especially uh, given a a recent YouGov poll that came out this week. Yeah, Justice Breyer was actually at the bottom of a poll measuring public opinion about members of the Supreme Court this week from YouGov and uh, The Economist. Uh, at the top are the big names, you know, justices that are at the center of these confirmation battles like Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, who seem to inspire like pretty divisive opinions uh, among polling respondents. But Justice Breyer at the bottom, 56%, not sure of their opinion about him, 24% favorable, 20% uh, very or somewhat unfavorable. But he is a pretty low-key justice. If yeah, he doesn't know. inspire a lot of strong feelings, I guess, <laughs> one way or the other. However, that could soon change. I think I like to think we're playing a small part in elevating his his profile, I guess, with this podcast episode, no? Yeah, us and, and his, uh, you know, kind of new pandemic-inspired uh, persona for doing potters and things like that. <laughs> yeah, not exactly the stuff of of major headlines but uh yeah he he has a he has a niche for sure so jimmy i think that just about wraps us up for this week a lot to talk about for a slow week there's always a lot to talk about with the supreme court but yes i enjoyed it and uh thank you natalie and thank you to our listeners for for tuning in it was it was pretty fun to chat about some some more evergreen topics this week and you know again to just to parrot natalie's reminder up top if you guys want to Actually, I think it was my reminder up top about writing a review. It was your <sighs> reminder. Okay, well. You want to remind my us se- again? <laughs> to parrot myself again. Uh, it helps very much when you guys uh, leave a review out there. It helps people find the show. And, you know, we like to see the nice things that you write about us. So just do us a favor. But again, thank you, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners. Thanks, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And as Jimmy said, please, please write us a review.